This uh, is the next section in our 1 Corinthians series. Uh, we've dealt very much with the spiritual gifts over chapters 12 to 14, and Paul, in bringing an, uh, this book to a climax, uh, deals wonderfully with this, this treatise on the resurrection and its centrality. So 1 Corinthians 15, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's on page 1155. And uh, please do open up, you'll be helped uh, to follow along. Uh, before we uh, come to God's Word, let's pray together and ask for His help in understanding it. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you have caused many in this place to be born again by your living and abiding words. We thank you that it is truly living and active. It cuts to the heart and shows us who we are, shows us who you are, and shows us what the right response to you is. And our prayer tonight is that you would help us grasp the significance of this teaching from 1 Corinthians 15 and that it would shape and change our lives for your glory. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm sure it's not escaped your notice that there's a little podium here with Jenga on top. Uh, I'm not going to ask if anyone wants a game. It's for the point of an illustration, of course. Uh, Jenga's been a, a family favourite for many years. Um, it, it looks quite tiny up there, doesn't it? It's pretty poor. I should have got one of these big garden Jengas, although I think health and safety would have had an issue with it. Those blocks can be lethal. Uh, they're pretty big. But you know how Jenga goes, surely. Everybody knows how to play Jenga, right? Yeah, of course you do. You start with the tower of wooden blocks, and to begin with, of course, this tower is straight and it's stable until you begin to play the game. Each player aims to remove one brick from the standing structure and then to place it on top of the tower. And basically, you lose if you cause it to collapse. Straightforward, isn't it? Now, think of this game as an illustration of... The, the teachings of the Christian faith, if you like, each brick representing a biblical truth. In its purest form, before anything is touched by human hands, the structure is strong, tall, stable. And as with any structure, there are foundational blocks that are utterly vital to the stability of the whole thing. And the beliefs that are core to Christianity that we're going to be looking at tonight in our passage in 1 Corinthians 15 are the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are fundamental to our faith. It's been fundamental to the faith since Jesus died and rose again. This is the foundation that the church has been built on. But here's the problem that we find in Corinth. The problem in Corinth is that they're playing around with some of these foundational blocks at the bottom. In 1 Corinthians 15, 12, Paul tells us that the Corinthians are saying things like, some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead. In other words, dead people don't come to life. That belief, as they held it, was shaped not by the teaching of the apostles as it was delivered to them, but actually shaped by the contours of their culture. 
as we've already seen in our series at various points, the Corinthians had a really low view of the body. They thought that God was only interested in the soul or the spirit. That was the view of the culture. In Greece at this time, they viewed the soul or the spirit as the good part. The body, the material things, well, that was the bad part. Because the body was weak. It failed. It, it was corruptible, defiling. So they, in a, in, in a sense, viewed death as liberation from the body. So in their view, it wasn't so much that resurrection was impossible, but more that resurrection was actually undesirable. No one in Greece at that time, having been freed from their body, would actually want it back. That's why we see the people in Corinth pushing back on the idea that since, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, death is defeated, and that those who believe the gospel will one day be raised, they started to push back on this. They failed to understand, though, both the resurrection as core to the Christian faith and a denial of this apostolic gospel, the gospel that was delivered to them by those who had seen the risen Jesus, by those who had authority to proclaim this message and verify it. And that's a problem. Because when you deny apostolic authority, in other words, you doubt the credibility of those who have given us this word of God, then you remove one of the core bricks. And you know the problem, of course, is that they didn't just doubt the credibility of the apostles at that time. They were doubting the credibility of the resurrection itself. And the whole point is, you remove the credibility of the apostolic witness from the Christian faith and you remove the bodily resurrection from the Christian faith, same as it is in Jenga, you, you lose because you cause it to collapse. You lose because you cause it to collapse. Is this just a problem for the early church? I think today we might well meet people who say that they follow Jesus, but maybe they poke and prod with dubiety at the resurrection from the dead. Maybe they poke and prod with dubiety at the apostolic witness, the credibility of the authority and sufficiency of the word of God. Some might say, well, I've stood, I've stood beside too many gravesides. Surely it's just a myth made up by Jesus' followers. He didn't actually rise from the dead. It was a resurrection in their faith, a resurrection in their hearts, not a physical one. Some would say it's a bit far-fetched. Some would say it's a barrier to people coming to know Jesus. Maybe we'd see more people in the church if we actually just kind of removed some of the more supernatural elements that we read of in the Bible. Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is warning the Corinthians and us, you can't displace or remove the bodily resurrection from the dead. If you do, you cause everything to collapse. That's why. He teaches at length in 1 Corinthians 15 on the resurrection of the dead. And the first thing he'll do that we're going to look at tonight is establish the historical reliability of Jesus' resurrection in order to lay this firm foundation for his argument that it was only the first step 
Jesus' resurrection was only the first step in the resurrection of all to come who would die in Christ. With that in mind, let's read 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 11 together. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. Amen. This is God's word. So what might you say to those who deny the resurrection of Jesus? I've come almost with the assumption tonight that no one here would deny the resurrection of Jesus or the prospect of the bodily resurrection, though there may be some. Maybe you're here tonight and you're thinking about Christianity. Uh, you wouldn't say that you have put your faith and trust in the blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins yet. Um, but generally, those who belong to Charlotte Chapel, by virtue of the fact that we have in our statement of faith the statement about the resurrection of Jesus and the the, the bodily resurrection to come, that we believe this. But what would we say to the skeptic? What would we say to those who deny the resurrection of Jesus or who, who suggest that it's merely a supernatural thing that we need to, or, or a myth that we need to debunk, really? Well, there are two main things I think this text tells us. Uh, the first thing regarding the resurrection, it really happened the resurrection is historically true. And number two, it really matters. The resurrection is theologically vital. Vital. But let's look at number one first. It really happened. The resurrection is historically true. Um, in this text, from verse three and following, Paul basically lists or appeals to four things uh, that give credence to the claim that Christ rose from the dead. Each of these concerns what Jesus actually did in his body. This Jesus who was raised and then seen was the same Jesus who was dead and buried. That's essentially what we're going to see. The first thing in there is Christ died. See that in verse 3? For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Christ 
the person, Jesus of Nazareth, the man who walked this earth 2,000 years ago, died on a cross. It's an historical event, easy to locate in Jerusalem at the time when Pontius Pilate was the governor there. Jesus Christ died in his body. And in order to demonstrate the physical reality of his death, he was buried. Christ was buried. That's what we go on to read. He died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried. Verse 4. And again, this is with reference to his physical body. In order to demonstrate the physical reality of his death, he was buried. But that's not all. In order to demonstrate the physical reality of his burial, he was raised. And the tomb was left empty. That's what we read again in verse 4. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Christ was raised. Now again, don't miss the historical marker in here. On the third day. The Bible is telling us that this resurrection can be pinpointed to an actual day. So this is no symbol. This is no metaphor. This is not just spiritual language. The resurrection of Jesus was not something that just happened as some kind of revival in the hearts of his disciples because they were sad at his loss. No, it actually happened. And once again, in order to demonstrate the physical reality of his bodily resurrection, Jesus was seen. And in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, you hear John say, as one of the witnesses, that which we have seen with our eyes and touched with our hands, this we proclaim to you concerning Christ and the life that is in him. We see Christ was seen. He appeared, it says. So Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ was raised, and then Christ appeared to a whole bunch of witnesses. In order, and all of this in his body to demonstrate the historical fact. It was a bodily resurrection. He appeared to Peter. The one who had denied him was now restored by him because he had seen the risen Jesus. He was transformed from this guy who just kind of wandered and oscillated between, you know, saying good things and then just putting his foot in his mouth all the time. He didn't know where he was. The one who was so timid that he denied Jesus in the courtyard as Jesus was being tried. The one who, following the resurrection of Jesus Christ, stood up and proclaimed boldly, this man that you killed, yeah, God raised him from the dead. And we are witnesses of the fact, he says. Peter saw him. The twelve saw him, it says including Thomas, the one who doubted, the one who said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. The one who later saw Jesus face to face and declared with that great profession of faith, my Lord and my God. Then the 500 brothers, Paul says, most of whom are still living. I love that. Paul's, Paul's writing at this time about 20 years after the death of Jesus and says, if anybody's dubious about this resurrection from the dead, that it was an actual historical event, that it really did happen, well, I've got some names and addresses here. Do you want me to set up a meeting with you, with these guys? Do you want me to, give you, do you want me to text you their contact cards? You know, and then you can give them a shout yourself to verify this, to see if what, is said, if what I've said is true or not. 
500 witnesses. That's, that's quite a strong body of evidence, is it not? I mean, imagine this. One Sunday morning, you don't quite make it to church. That's not good. But someone tells you later, did you know Queen Elizabeth was in Charlotte Chapel this morning? And you're like, no, you don't believe it. At first, it seems ridiculous to think that the Queen would pitch up at Charlotte Chapel. Uh, But maybe you struggle to know whether this friend that has told you this is actually telling you the truth or not. But what if that person gives you the names and addresses of 499 other people who were there, who saw her with their own eyes, some of whom curtsied, some bowed, some shook her hand, some talked with her? What would that do to the credibility of the story of the friend who first told you? Would it not give it credibility? I think it would. Paul says, same here, same here. I've got plenty of guys who could corroborate this story. And Paul could never have made that claim if those eyewitnesses didn't actually exist. Again, on account of the evidence of the appearance of the bodily raised Jesus Christ to the witnesses. Paul's saying you can't deny this. The list goes on. There's James. James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, who we see in Mark chapter 3, coming along with all of his family, thinking that they're going to actually seize hold of Jesus. It says in Mark 3.21, when his family heard about this, that Jesus was teaching people crowds and barely looking after himself, you know, not eating, they went to take charge of him. Literally, that means they, his family, went to arrest him. I think that's a funny picture. For they said, he's out of his mind. He's, he's, He's going crazy. And then John 7, 5 tells us, clearly, even his own brothers did not believe in him. So, James... The one, one of the guys who did not actually believe the testimony that Jesus Christ was the Son of God during his earthly ministry is one who has witnessed the risen, his half-brother, Jesus, risen. And he believed. Not only was he a believer, he became the guy who was the leader of the Jerusalem church and wrote one of the books that we have in our New Testament. Then to the apostles, and then last of all to me, as Paul says, one, well, untimely born, abnormally born. It's it's a bit of a gloss, to be fair. It's actually quite a graphic and striking description here. It almost suggests a very late delivery. I don't know. It's unclear, but it's almost the picture of someone with, you know, delivering four babies at a time. But the first three are delivered well and straightforwardly, but the fourth just takes a long time to come and it's just, it's just a painful experience. That's, that's the kind of picture here. And we can see why Paul paints it in that way because he talks about his persecution. But he highlights that to raise for us something seriously massive and, and impressionable must have happened for the man who was set on eradicating the church of Jesus Christ to become the one who would take that very gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. And even in the context of this letter, that's really significant because these guys in Corinth were believing some false teachers that had come in, probably with some lies about Paul that discredited him. They wrongly assumed lots and lots of things about Paul, like his poverty in preaching, that he... That meant he lacked some kind of spiritual wisdom and authority. But that doesn't matter. 
Paul is one who has seen the risen Jesus. Apprehended on that Damascus road, on his way with a warrant for the arrest and the destruction of Christians. That's what he means when he says, I don't deserve to be an apostle. He's telling all this to show us that there was absolutely nothing in his religious background that could account for this change of life where this persecutor of the gospel became a preacher of the gospel. What happened? The risen Lord Jesus appeared to him. It's the only thing that could account for the transformation that took place in him and in many others that have already been listed in this. So you see this, in all of this, Paul is pressing home this point in 1 Corinthians 11. These are historical truths. The bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, it actually happened. These things really happened. And all of this to serve up, because in the rest of the chapter, he's going to say, without this resurrection, without these facts, without taking your stand on these historical truths, verified by this list of witnesses, everything collapses. You've got nothing. So don't pretend, Corinthians, that you can have some kind of Christian faith, that you can have a happy time when you get together on a Sunday praising the Lord Jesus, when in fact you have caused everything to collapse. You cannot be a Christian and deny the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. With, you, with the solid evidence of these witnesses, instead he's saying, you remember what I preached. It's the same as what all these guys are preaching. And on this, you truly can take your stand, but don't ever move on from it. Don't ever play around with it. Don't even poke and prod at these things. They're historical truths that are vital to the faith. You see what Paul's trying to help us see here? Unfortunately, we can't go back and meet any of these guys. We don't have the names and addresses of them. They're all in glory now. Not, it's not just that some have fallen asleep. All have now fallen asleep. But this is where we, in faith, lean on and rely on the testimony of the witnesses. These guys are faithful messengers. That's what I want to encourage you to see. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, these guys are faithful messengers. All of these letters, these truths were circulating at a time when, these, when others, the apostles, those closest to Jesus, many others who saw him in his appearances could have said, no, no, that letter, that's not right. They could have debunked it. They could have taken it out. These guys were faithful messengers. My granddad was a motorbike dispatch rider in the Second World War. Basically means he was a motorbike messenger. And dispatch riders were, were used by the arms, armed forces to deliver urgent orders and messages between headquarters and military units. They had an absolutely vital role to play at the time when telecommunications were limited and often insecure. These guys often had to memorize messages just in case they were captured by the enemy. Effectively, they had a message, they had a pistol in their pocket, and they had a motorbike. Now, my granddad's task was straightforward. Take a message from the commander to the recipient of the message. Like a messenger, truly, he was to receive it and he was to pass it on. And that's exactly what Paul is telling us about these witnesses. 
what they have done is they have taken what they have received and they have passed it on. That's what Paul says in himself. Paul says himself in verse, 5, uh, verse 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. Sorry, it's in verse 3. For, I, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. I'm a messenger, he says. To reject my words is to reject the one who sent me to deliver it. And because this, it is the word of God divinely revealed, it is an authoritative declaration of the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Paul is saying to the Corinthians and to us, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is an historical truth. And this is what must be believed. It really happened. It really happened. But the second thing I want to say tonight is that it really matters. It really matters. The resurrection is not just historically true. It is theologically vital. Paul's already said, by this gospel you are saved. So that's what's at stake. Salvation is at stake. Whether or not you have a right standing with God is what's at stake and it all hinges on what you believe about this death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and Paul's point in this whole chapter which focuses on the resurrection primarily is it must be believed don't ever move on from it take your stand on it and do so confidently that's why he says if you hold firmly if you hold by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you otherwise you have believed in vain. In other words, if you, if you don't hold firmly to this, if you let it slip through your hands or if you throw it out like an old piece of clothing, then your salvation will be brought into question. That's Paul's warning to a church that things, thinks that this bodily resurrection thing is questionable, that it's up for grabs. Well, he cautions them, and actually us, saying you cannot rely on past profession of faith alone. You must demonstrate the genuineness of your faith by continuing to hold firm to the gospel that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and was buried, and was raised again on the third day, according to the scriptures, and appeared to the witnesses. Paul says that's how the church in Corinth was born. That's how any church is born. And in this, they must continue. So that can tell us even that there might be many buildings in this city with the word church on the sign outside. But unless that congregation is built on a gospel foundation, it is a church by name alone. By name alone. Because here's where we see the significance of this. Christ died. This is the gospel that is of first importance. Christ died. That's a historical fact. But what's the theological meaning behind it? What is God doing? Why did Jesus die? For our sins. Death and sin are coupled in the Bible regularly. Did you know that? Coupled from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. In Genesis 2, God warns Adam. He, he said, on the day that you disobey me, you will surely die. So there's the warning there from the beginning. And even in, in, at the end of Revelation, that is the grim reality of eternal punishment defined by God as the, the, the second death. 
And again and again, in between, we read things like the soul that sins shall die and the wages of sin is death, which tells us and gives meaning to these words and this event of the crucifixion to tell us that this human offense is one of defiance and rebellion and and of despising of God. Summed up in the word sin. The just reward for our sin is death. That's the penalty for it. But here is the good news. Christ died for our sins, not us. We did the sinning, he did the dying. The wages of sin is death, and Christ received those wages in his death on the cross. It's what we call a substitutionary death. He took our place. He paid our debt. He bore our sin. It's what we were reading earlier in Isaiah 53. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we, we are healed. John Stott says, the essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God. But the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be. But in Christ Jesus, God put himself where we deserve to be. So our sins can be wiped away. So that we might have forgiveness even for the most abhorrent and ugly things that we have done. The things that you don't dare to tell any other person. Christ died for our sins, was buried, and Christ was raised. His resurrection acting like the seal or the endorsement of that sacrifice that was made, that death that he died three days before. Philip Ryken calls it a receipt. He says the proof that God saves is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Imagine Jesus died on the cross without ever rising from the grave. How could we be certain that Jesus had really dealt with our sin and all its terrible consequences with guilt and alienation, suffering and death? At most we could say, perhaps God has accepted the cross as payment for my sin, but I cannot know for certain. He says we would have no receipt to show that the price of our redemption has been paid in full. We would have no token of affection to show that the price of our redemption had been paid in full. But by the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead, we do have that receipt. We do know it as a token of his love and an assurance for all who put their faith and trust in him that their sins are wiped clean. And eternal life is theirs if they would take hold of it by faith. It tells us, this resurrection, that what Jesus died to achieve on that Good Friday, he did achieve. And God was satisfied with that payment for sin. Because he died, we can be forgiven. Because he was raised, we can know and rejoice in the fact that we're forgiven and look forward to the life that is to come. Without this resurrection of the Lord Jesus, there would be no guarantee of these realities. No victory over Satan, sin and death. No sure hope of eternal life. 
this is why this matters. This is why it matters. So in closing, for those of us who profess faith in Jesus Christ, this is the gospel that has been preached. This is the gospel that we pray will continue to be preached, not only from, from this, in this church, but in churches throughout the land continually. We pray that this gospel, when it is preached, will be received by faith by those who hear it, and many more than we have seen. But the, the encouragement for us, I think, in this text is to realize that we, we must always be conscious and always be intentional that we are keeping the main thing, the main thing. That these doctrines, these teachings that Paul declares are, are of first importance, are first importance in what we're doing. And I'm not just talking about from the pulpit. I'm talking about in our ministries. I'm talking about in our Sunday school. I'm talking about in time out. I'm talking about in our one-to-ones or our home groups. Is the gospel central? These things that Paul declares are of first importance. Do we reflect on these? Hold firmly to these. Speak these things into one another's lives regularly. Remind ourselves of the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. It's in doing that positively every day with encouragement of one another that we will make sure that we never let this crucial doctrine slip through our hands. This is the way we will hold firmly to it, by treasuring it, loving it, preaching it, taking our stand on it, and encouraging one another in our fellowship to take their stand on it too. Never let go. Hold firmly in everything. What about if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian? There are really two options for you. You could remain skeptical. Let's face it, that's an option for you. Even after everything that's been said tonight, you might choose to doubt or still discredit the resurrection. But can I encourage you to see that in order to do so, you need to come up with some other explanation for the global movement that is Christianity. There needs to be some explanation for it. And it's funny that most people think that when it comes to the resurrection, the burden of proof is actually on believers, preachers, to produce evidence. But actually, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the spread of global Christianity as as that which comes from that, the, the resurrection being the death and resurrection of Jesus being the spark that ignited it all. The resurrection puts a burden of proof on you as a skeptic, actually. My encouragement is for you to doubt your doubts. Question your questions. Because if Jesus really did defeat death, as Tim Keller says, you should really want this to be true. So at least give credence to your rejection or your skepticism by considering it further. Why don't you come and have a chat with us about it? Why don't you do a Christianity Explored course? There's a full session in that seven-week course which deals specifically with the resurrection. Why don't you speak to us and sign up for, for one of those? You can fill in the Connect card. You'd be most welcome to. 
So you could remain skeptical. Otherwise, you could believe the gospel. You could believe this good news. You could take it and trust it and lean on it and be thankful that Jesus died for your sin and actually rose from the dead so that you can be sure that God was pleased with that sacrifice and that God will bless all and all who come to him in faith and in repentance. Repentance means that you have to stop running from God and run instead gladly to him. Believing this gospel requires you to do a U-turn in life, really. To believe this good news and take your stand on it. And not simply with some kind of mental assent, but a true believing in, a living in the knowledge of the good news that this thing, this death and resurrection of Jesus, this gospel you then believe shapes everything. And I pray that tonight, if you're ready to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you would confess your sin to him, say sorry, that you would thank God for sending him, Jesus, to die on the cross for your sin and ask him to come into your life and to take control that you might live for him and the joy of this forgiveness and this risen life. Let's pray together. Father, 